Good morning. Um, it's just good to be here. It's good to be with you today. I'm excited to open the Word of God with you uh, as we uh, dig in the Scripture. Oftentimes, as I pray for our church, I pray that we would be, that I would be, that we would be uh, people that are thirsty for the Spirit and that we are hungry for the Word. Uh, which is an anchor for our soul. So um, let us be refreshed in the living and active word of God this morning. Would you open to Matthew chapter 19 uh, as we continue this journey through the gospel according to Matthew? If you uh, are maybe here for the first time, we're doing this chapter by chapter. And uh, I'm going to pick up today where my good friend Jody Green and Jeremy uh, left off last week, if you were here, what a treat, amen, to uh, her teaching and their story, and uh, man, raw and redemptive and restorative, and uh, just was a wonderful uh, time together. I'll pick up where she, where she left off, but let me, let me point this out. If we could pull that map up, this, let me, I, I think this is helpful for us to uh, just to continue to be reminded of kind of the lay of the land and what's happening and the geographic transition uh, that... Um, is going on toward really the end of Jesus' earthly ministry before he goes to Jerusalem. So uh, some timeline context, some geographic context in Matthew 19 specifically is that there's a transition uh, from Galilee to Judea in the ministry with the disciples. In the discipleship training program, three years of ministry with the 12 disciples, Two-thirds of that time was in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Most of that was in the city of Capernaum, uh, where uh, Peter and James and John the fishermen were all where. That's where Matthew, where they were all called uh, to be disciples. And the transition in 19 is from uh, Galilee, Capernaum, south through Samaria to Jerusalem. In other words, everything now in the Gospel of Matthew is moving to the cross, and so that's the context of the geographic context and the timeline context of what we're reading about. In other words, like this is coming to the reality of what Jesus came to do, which is die on the cross for our sins and raise to life so that we would have hope and peace and joy. And these are the last really weeks uh, that he has with the disciples. Um, everything is moving to the cross. Um, the last thing that um, Jody mentioned last week is this... Um, passage out of Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14, and basically, uh, people were bringing uh, little children to Jesus, and the disciples were pretty bothered by it because little children are annoying. I mean, I'm a former uh, youth pastor, and sometimes, and I have five kids, and sometimes children are annoying. I mean, they're just kind of like, they just, they just got needs, right? They're, they just got needs, and so the disciples were a little annoyed that all these people are bringing children to Jesus. And uh, Jesus said this to the disciples, no, 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 let, let the little children uh, come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, which is similar to the teaching that he gave them in Matthew 18 when they were arguing and bantering and having conflict on who the greatest was in the kingdom. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, unless you become like little children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's this reality about the dependency of children and the humility of children that Jesus is trying to get through to the disciples, and they're a little hard-headed like I am. And so he just, you know, the, the, it just keeps repeating itself. And I think um, 
I, I take these two passages, and I just want to start with kind of the big point of the day, and we'll see this point throughout the rest of 19 and into chapter 20 as well. Kingdom breakthrough, like supernatural kingdom breakthrough comes when we, when people embrace our utter dependence on God to rescue us. And that is something that we have got to understand and embrace, and we'll see it today in our passage. Well, Matthew 18 and 19, Jesus is talking about children and how dependent they are and how needy they are. And he's like basically saying, if you want to be great, you got to be humble like a child. And then there's this, uh, this young guy that comes up to him in the next story at the end of Matthew 19. Matthew, the language that Matthew gives us is that it was a rich young man. And so that's what we get. He's a rich young man. I think it's Mark or maybe Luke uh, that told us it was a rich young ruler. So what we know about this guy is that he's young and that he's rich and that he has influence over people. I mean, may, we don't know if he's just like a, you know, a, a um, savant uh, entrepreneur that just made a lot of cash. Most likely he received an inheritance of some kind, but he had some influence and he, had, um, he was young and he had some questions for Jesus, because also he was real, real, real religious. Like, check the box, kind of religious, I can do this, kind of religious. So he has some questions about religion uh, when he comes up to Jesus. And I want you to hold rich young ruler, checking boxes, tell me what I gotta do with humility and dependency like a child. So I want you to hold those two realities as we read through this. So let's read through the first part of this, Matthew 19, uh, 16 to 23, and I don't have my glasses, and because I'm 49 next month, I am going to need my glasses because as my granddad, my Papa Swain used to say, old age is creeping up on me. So thank you, Anne, for laughing at my joke. Thank you. <laughs> 16 to 23. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired, and Jesus replied, Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man who was real serious and probably a little bit cocky said this to Jesus. All these I have kept. I have loved every single person. I have loved every neighbor as I've loved myself my whole life. I mean, can you just... That's where he was. That's who he was. That's how he answered. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, because that's what he was pursuing, perfection. If you want to be perfect, verse 21, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And when Jesus, then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he is rich and he is young and he is very serious about religion. He's so serious about religion where it comes to the point where Jesus goes, obey the law. And he's like, I got that on the lockdown. I do all that. What else do I have to do? One of the things that I want to really hone in on is the guy's question to see where his frame of mind was around salvation, around uh, what we have to do to get eternal life. And it's verse 16. So if we could pull that verse up. Uh, my clicker's not working today. I apologize for that. Thank you, Mark. Uh, what must I do? Could we bring up uh, it's verse 16 of chapter 19? Is that in there somewhere? Do we have that? I'll read it. If you can find it, great. If not, it's okay. Um, Here's the verse. Um, He says, what must I do? Must I do? Like, what must I do to get? Okay? Simple question, but when we really look at it, it's like, tell me what I have to do to get. What do I have to do to earn it? What do I have to do to get it? Tell me what... Tell me what to do. Oh, if you tell me what, oh, I'll go get it. I'll go get it because I can do it. That's the, that's the mindset. And it's interesting how Jesus engages the question because he gives them something to do. And we're like, wait, wait, wait. Jesus is the God of all grace. He's the God of all comfort, like the new covenant of grace. Like, why does Jesus answer the way he answers? And what I want to invite you to consider is this. Jesus answers a question about the law or a question about religion with religion. Like, if you're going to go this way, then I'll tell you what more you have to do to the degree, verse 21, of being perfect. So he answers a question about religion. What must I do to get? Well, here's what you must do to get. You must be perfect. And it broke down. Because that's what religion always does. Religion always breaks down some way, somehow, um, when it comes to salvation. Uh, The mantra of religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Like, I do this, and I get this. Um, I do these things, and because I do these things, God will accept me, uh, God will forgive me, and God will bless me. That's religion, And if we choose religion, if we're going the way of the rich young ruler, if we choose the way of religion, the law, checking boxes for justification, it must be all the way to perfection. And that's what Jesus says. Take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor. Verse 22, and the young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. He wasn't willing to do that. Tell me what I got to do to get it. All right. Well, I'll tell you what you got to do to get it. You got to do this. I'm not willing to do that. Right? Religion always breaks down somewhere along the line. Somewhere and in some way, I, you, we will fall short and religion will fail you. Either by your own failure or from some tragedy or from being wounded by some other person who's going the way of religion and they're doing it a little bit better than you are and they're gonna let you know about it, right? You're gonna get wounded. You're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna fall short. Like it's gonna come into your face because no one is perfect. 
And so we get, we, get a lot of, we get a lot of people like the rich young ruler who went away from Jesus sad. Like we get a lot of people who leave the church sad, hurt, angry, disappointed, because what they get is teaching atmosphere around this is what you have to do to get. And they get discouraged and they get overwhelmed or they make a mistake or they have some tragedy and it all breaks down because ultimately religion will break down. And so they know the rules and they know the fear and the shame and the judgment of the religious systems and cultures and they miss the radical grace and the abounding hope that is found in Jesus alone. And so they leave. Noah, my friend Noah Myers said this last week when he was inviting you to the apologetics class that's starting on Wednesday night, that depending on what you read statistic-wise, uh, anywhere from between 60 and 90%, depending on the study you read, and it's so, it's so encouraging for me always to come in and see young people studying and, and worshiping and learning and growing because the stats say that 60 to 90% of young people who grow up in church leave the church when they get to college. They go away sad, angry, hurt, disillusioned, disappointed. So Peter, Peter hears what Jesus is saying, back, back to the story. And he hears Jesus say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he starts tripping. And I, I love Peter because the dude can't, he can't not say what he's thinking and feeling. And in terms of like being in relationship with people, it's a little bit messier, but it's so much better just to know what people are thinking and feeling than to bury, like to bury things like under and then have resentment and then like, and then somebody's upset with me, but I don't know they're upset with me because they don't talk to me about it. And, P and Peter's like, he's just, that's why I love Peter. He's just out there. He's just, he's just raw and authentic. And he's just like, whoa, 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 time out. That's impossible. Like, he's like, well, if that's the case, who can, why have I been following you around for three years? Why did I leave everything if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Like, what is going on here? Because Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler is to this question, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says this, you must do it all perfectly. That's, that's what you must do. And Peter knows that he can't do that, and I know that I can't do that, and you know if you're honest that you can't do that, and so we're like, well, who can be saved? What are we even doing here? Why are we even here this morning? What's this all about even to begin with? Because if, they, if that's the thing, then we're all in a predicament. Would you agree with that? Everyone in this room has broken the moral law of God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all utterly dependent on God and his grace to send Jesus to rescue us. No one in this room can remember the first time you lied. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Because you've been lying since the day you've been talking. And anyone with small children knows this. Like, so if you don't have small children, <laughs> let, me, let me invite you in. Let, let me just invite you in, okay? Uh, so let's just say 
let's say one of my kids took a Sharpie to the kitchen table. Hypothetically. <laughs> yeah. And they know they're not supposed to do that, but they do it. Maybe they were coloring and it was on accident. Maybe they just colored on the table. By the way, now we have five kids. Lindsay, who is so brilliant, ended up just painting the kitchen table that uh, black chalk. And it's covered with paint. And it doesn't bother me anymore. And if you came over to our house, we would just put a tablecloth over it. <laughs> brilliant. But it used to stir me up when markings would get on the kitchen table. And so I might hypothetically be annoyed by that as a dad <laughs> and go to one of my kids and say, who did this? Which Lindsay tends to point that out. No one's going to tell you the truth when you come at it like that because <laughs> you're intimidating, right? Maybe you said that to me a couple times in our marriage, once or twice. <laughs> who did this? I don't know, says child Swain. I don't know, but I know that she knows that she did it. We all know, but the answer is I don't know. And I'm like, really, you don't know? This just happened, you don't know? Second, I don't know. And then it's like, you're really going to stay with I don't know? And if you've never had small kids, just let me, yes, they will stay with that. They will stay with that. This is impossible, Jesus. Who can be saved? Here is the grace of God. Jesus, verse 23, said to his disciples, he tells them it's harder for a rich man, easier for a camel. Verse 25, the disciples, then they hear this. They hear this. And they were greatly astonished. And they asked, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter's tripping still. But we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, like, whoa, whoa. We're special. Like, what about us? And Jesus is teaching them the way of the kingdom. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you, will have you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. But as many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be, will be first. When it, Peter, disciples, when it comes to salvation with man, it is impossible. In other words, with your doing, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he wants them to see he wants them to see the economy 
of the kingdom of heaven, which is upside down from the world's economy. In the world's economy, the powerful and the wealthy make all the rules and they set the pace. And in God's economy, full dependency like a child and humility is the way. The first will be last and the last will be first. We tend to think, like the rich young ruler, verse 16, what must I do? Tell me what I have to do. We tend to think that way in terms of uh, living in this world, because that's what the world teaches. Um, But God's way is not about earning, keeping tabs. That's religion. That that is impossible. Jesus is saying, like, yeah, you want to follow it all the way out. It's, it's to perfection, and that's impossible. With man, that is impossible. But with God, all things are, with God, things all, all things are possible. Jesus isn't teaching about religion. He's teaching the way of grace, possibilities. Grace isn't about determining uh, what to do. Grace is understanding what's been done for us. Favor isn't about checking boxes. Favor isn't about what's fair. Favor is favor. Favor is favor, which is the next lesson. Right on the heels of those, those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. Right after he says that, he goes right into a parable, the parable of the vineyard. And so it's just, it's, it's all happening all at the same time. He's helping them see the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Those who will be first will be last. Those who are last will be first. And he tells them this parable. It's the first 20 verses, 16 verses of Matthew 20. Let's read this together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius at that time was a wage for a full day's worth of work. And about the third hour, which is 9 a.m., the first, the first hour is 6 a.m., about so three hours later, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, which tells us that when he hired the first people at 6 a.m., they were standing there in the marketplace and needed work. And they were hired by the vineyard owner to work and receive a full day's wage. And so when you're out of work and you are needing work and you're hired at 6 a.m. to to make a full day's wage, do you think the people that worked the first three hours, do you think that they were grateful to get that work that day? They were grateful to go and work and receive a denarius. And they're working and they're, they're doing the job in the vineyard and they're pulling the grapes and they're doing what they're told to do. And about 9 a.m., three hours later, more people show up to help out. So about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace who had nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. And he went out again about the sixth hour, 12 noon, the first hour, 6 a.m., And about the ninth hour, and he did the same thing at three o'clock. And at the 11th hour, five o'clock p.m., he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, what have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said, well, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, after the workday was over, 
the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going onto the field. Start with the people that worked for one hour. Start with them. And the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. Well, that ain't fair. I mean, if you're, if you're the worker that started at 6 a.m., if we're honest, do you think that your gratitude at 6 a.m. has changed now at the end of the day when homies here have been working an hour and I've been working for 12 hours and you get paid the same thing that I just got paid? No way, man, that ain't, that ain't happening. Do you feel that? Like, I feel that. I literally feel it in my body as I do this, like, little interaction with my two friends. Because <laughs> it ain't fair, you guys. I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Favor isn't fair. Favor is favor. So when those who were hired first... So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Maybe at the beginning, they're like, oh, well, if they worked for one hour, they received a denarius, maybe we're going to get 12 denarius. That's what I would be thinking. Is that what you would be thinking? Because that's fair. That's what they're thinking. But each one of them also received a denarius. Back to, that ain't fair. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And before we throw those people under the bus, I think we would be wise to humble ourselves and go, that's probably me. It's probably me. They're grumbling. These men who were hired last only worked an hour, they said, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. So it started with gratitude, and it's not just like, you did this to us. You feel that? Like, it was a hot day, and we've been working all day, and we were grateful at 6 a.m., but now you did this to us. Man, this, the switch. But he answered them, friend, I am not being, here it is, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Second time they've heard that in the same setting. The last shall be first First shall be a parable. A parable is a story. It's an illustration. Uh, Jesus is a master teacher. He's teaching. He's bringing an illustration to teach. Here's what I think this means. The owner represents God, the father who owns the vineyard. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. The laborers represent those people who have heard the gospel and they have responded to the invitation of God to come. And the denarius, a full day's wage, represents our reward. Our reward is salvation. It's receiving the person and the work of Jesus. 
which is given to all workers no matter when they came into the vineyard. And the issue, what's the issue with the early laborers in the parable? The issue with the early laborers, and I think probably every laborer along the day was probably feeling that and pretty frustrated at the people who only worked an hour. And the issue was what? That ain't fair. And I just want to say, like, as people of God, people of grace, people who celebrate and proclaim the grace of God, we have to let go of fair. Because favor, the favor of God, the unmerited favor, has nothing to do with fair. And I promise you, you don't want fair. I don't want fair. What we want is grace and favor. That's what we want. That's what we, and that's, that's the glory of the grace upon grace of God. God's reward fully depends on his sovereign grace, on his favor, not on your work. And kingdom breakthrough is when we see and understand and embrace our utter dependence before God. And so Jesus, at this, at this moment, he's like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell them once again about the favor of the cross and the resurrection. Like those who are first will be last, those who are last will be first. I'm tripping up on this because it's not fair and I have to see, I'm blinded to it, I'm blinded to it because I'm not seeing this, I'm not understanding this. And so he's gonna help them understand the favor of God by predicting the cross once again. In chapter 16, it says from that time on, Jesus began to predict the cross and the resurrection to his disciples because they were getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. So when you go, when you read, if you just do a reading between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20, there are four predictions of the cross and the resurrection from Jesus to the disciples in those four chapters. The one that we're about to read is the fourth one. And so he tells him, again, for the fourth time in verse 17, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... Now, they've, now they're like, now they're not in Judea. Now they're going into Jerusalem. We're talking about a week or so before the cross. That's where the timeline is. They're going to Jerusalem. He took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Hallelujah. So note, note this. This, this would be a, um, a fun study, I believe, for you. If you go back and read those chapters, 16, 17, 18, 19, and you find the predictions of the cross, okay? I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. All four predictions, the Lord never mentions the cross without the accompanying promise of the resurrection, I'm not going to talk to you about the suffering without telling you of the glory of the resurrection that's going to come after. And so we take the mission of Jesus. If we separate the cross from the resurrection, we're separating something that Jesus didn't separate when he predicted the cross. It's together. Like, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to raise on the third day. And it was hard for the disciples. They loved Jesus. They were his disciples and every day for three years. And it was hard for them to think about this. And, they, and when, he, when he kept talking about it over and over, like it, it created grief in them. Well, the first one we know from chapter 16 is when Peter put his foot in his mouth and pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, no, 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 no. That can never happen. And that's the famous 
The place where Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of the world in mind. And then the grace of God is on display in the next chapter because Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 17, and Peter got to go. Like, he just, like, get behind me, Satan. And then, by the way, by, by the way Peter, like, come up and see me, see the, my glory transform before your eyes. Like, the, the patient grace of God. So that happened in 16. Well, in chapter 20, after Jesus' fourth prediction from the cross, James and John, the sons of thunder, they start trying to position themselves. So let's think about this. There was already an argument after the transfiguration in chapter 17, and there was like this bickering about who the greatest was in the kingdom. And maybe James and John and Peter, we talked about this, we had some fun with that. Maybe they had the big head because like, we got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and you didn't. And that's what, that's what started that conversation when Jesus said, if you wanna be humble, you gotta be like a child. Like greatness is humility. Well, same guys, they get their mom involved now. <laughs> and that's a breach of the bro code. <laughs> and Jesus predicts his cross for the fourth time you guys, they're going to Jerusalem. This is happening within days. And, ja- and James and John, who had just heard, like, you got to become like a child. You got to be humble. You, the first will be last, and the last will be, they just heard that twice. They get their mom involved. And, and when we read the story, it was all three of them. So if we read it and it's just the mom, it's like, okay, mom, you, like, you kind of did some helicopter parenting on that one. Um, and trying to maneuver and get your boys like at the right and left of Jesus. But they were all like together. So James and John, they go get their mom and they bring her in and they're trying to position themselves at the right and the left hand of God. Let's read the story. Let me just tell you, the other 10, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. So verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons come to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down and asked a favor of him. Ah, Jesus, can we ask you a favor? She said, what, what is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. We want them to have positions of influence. You don't know what you are asking Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink, meaning the cup of suffering? You don't know what you're asking for. And they said, we can. Rich young ruler, what did he say? I can, we can, I can. To which Jesus said, you, well, you will indeed drink from my cup. We don't know this from scripture, but we know this from early church history that every disciple died a martyr's death for proclaiming the name of Jesus. There's something about the resurrection that changes everything. It changed everything for them. But in this moment, they were, they were spiritually blind. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I don't know if they were indignant because 
they were trying to maneuver on him or if they were indignant because Peter and James beat him to the punch. Like they, were, they got to the front of the line before. It's like being at Disneyland and you're like, you're trying to get to the front of the line and there's like 100 people in front of you and you're oh. So I don't really know, but there's something in me that's like, I think they may were indignant because they, they want those seats too. And so they were indignant with the two brothers and Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Humble, humble, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John were not getting the message. They were not seeing clearly. They get their mom's help to position them. Doesn't go over well with the disciples. There's this big brouhaha about it because James and John were behaving like the vineyard workers who got there at 6 a.m. Like that's how they were acting. That's how, and they just heard the parable and that's how they're behaving. They weren't seeing clearly. Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. It's almost time. They're weeks away. And the disciples are anxious about positions of influence and authority. So chapter 16, when they had this big argument, Jesus said, if you want to be great, you got to be humble like a child. Chapter 20, when they're arguing about positions of influence, Jesus says, you got to be a servant. Let's just put those two things together. What is Jesus teaching his disciples and teaching us? Greatness is about being humble servants. So when I step away in marriage, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, when I step away from humility and serving and I go the way of pride and making it about me and my position, I am moving away from the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus and his disciples is humble. Jesus said it this way, I didn't even come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life away as a ransom for many. And they needed to see, and that's what we all need, don't we? To see. We get so blinded, I get so blinded by ambition and position and earthly security. James and John did, the other 10 did as well. That's why they were so indignant, I think. And I think, I think the next story, and we'll wrap, we'll wrap here. It's the last story of Matthew chapter 20. And I've always read, it's, it's, the, it's the two blind men in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. Um, Matthew doesn't say their names, but... I think Mark or Luke one says, like, one of their names is who? Blind man, you know? Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. But there's two of them. And I just go, I, I think that might be significant to James and John asking for positions. That in the providence of God, they're moving out of this teaching, and there are these two guys on the side of the road in Jericho 
before they go to Jerusalem, can we put that map back up, Mark? I want you to see this for a second. So you see Jericho and Judea, and then you see Jerusalem. These two blind men are going to encounter Jesus in Jericho. And from Jericho to Jerusalem, here's a topography. I have to go up, up to the Mount of Olives, the town of Bethany, right? Town of Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. And then down on the other side of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then up into Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? The cross of Calvary. They are right on the doorstep. And Jesus is talking with them about being a humble servant and their spiritual blindness. And I just think, I'm reading this, I'm going, I've always seen this story just kind of as an isolated event. I'm just inviting you to say, I think there's providence here because James and John were blind and they needed to see. And so they interact with these two guys. One of them was Bartimaeus. And here's how the story goes. You know the story. Verse 29 at the end of the chapter, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, which is the exact same thing the pagan Gentile Canaanite woman was saying to Jesus in Gentile territory just a few weeks before calling Jesus by his messianic title, asking Jesus for mercy. And so they're by the roadside. Let's see how the crowd liked that. They didn't like it very well. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder because when you're desperate, you don't really care so much about what everybody thinks about you. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and he said, What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. He is merciful to them. And he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. They didn't stay in Jericho, because when you get healed... Like when you, when you don't see and then you see, you follow the one who healed you. And we see that in these two blind guys in Jericho. And my question to you is this, like, is seeing believing or is believing seeing? Like, what did they say to Jesus? Like, have mercy on us. Like, is, do I have to see it to believe it or do I believe it? And then I see it. Because that I see in this story is they believed it. They were proclaiming it. They were calling on the mercy and the compassion of God. And then they saw it. And what I want you to connect is this. I want you to connect the question of Jesus in verse, oh my gosh, I literally cannot read without these things. It's driving me crazy. Verse 32. I want you to compare Jesus' question in verse 32 to verse 16 in chapter 19. So in 16, verse 16 in chapter 19, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to get? What does Jesus say to these two guys? What do you want me to do for you? That gives me chills. That is being awakened with spiritual sight. 
when we stop asking, what do I gotta do to get? And we start answering Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer is simply, we wanna see. And that's my answer, and I hope it's your answer. Oh, Lord, I wanna see. I wanna see with spiritual eyes. I want you to grow me to be more humble, to be a more humble servant. And he gets healed, and he follows, because that's what happens. Well, what happened to John? Worship team, you can come back up. What happened to John? You see, the resurrection changes everything. All it takes is one revelation of the resurrection of Jesus, and it will change everything in your life. I want to say that again. All it takes is one revelation of the risen Lord of glory, Jesus the Christ. It'll change everything in your life. John was tripping up. He needed healing, and he got healing. And he wrote this after the resurrection. He sees the resurrection. He sees Jesus after the cross. He sees the ascension of Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1. He writes this letter, 1 John chapter 1. Compare what John is saying here to when he got his mother and his brother involved asking Jesus if they could be in positions of authority. Like compare the two, because this is what he writes to the church after the resurrection, 1 John 2, chapter 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man. Did John have some cravings? In Matthew 20, the lust of his, what's it say? The lust of his, his eyes. He was spiritually blind. He wanted position. He couldn't see. He didn't understand the last will be first, the first will be last. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Open, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We need to see you. And we need to follow you and not follow the ways of our flesh, of our pride, of our selfishness, but to follow as the humble servants you have called us to be. Lord, would you do the work in me and us that you did in John? Would you bring healing to our blindness? so that we can see and be transformed to be the humble servants that you have called us to be. And that we would joyfully, with gratitude, follow you all the way. Or thank you for what we see in these narrative stories and the process that the disciples were in. It wasn't perfect, it was a process. But there was growth change. And Lord, they saw you resurrected and it changed everything. So Lord, open our hearts today. 
heal us today. Do this work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name.